Welcome to the Keep It Clean podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Dane Gregory. The Keep It Clean podcast was developed around an idea of helping to inspire and motivate fellow cleaning professionals by listening to startup stories and histories of others in the business. Twice each month, we will interview industry icons and colleagues and get their story of how they got started in this oftentimes wonderful and sometimes painful business of cleaning things for other people. Hopefully you will like, subscribe, and follow us so you never miss an episode. And hey, if you wouldn't mind giving us a review, we would really appreciate that. And as always, thanks for listening. Today we're going to change things up a bit. We are repeating our first interview podcast with Tom Hill, as I've learned to clean up the audio a bit and wanted to share this important interview out for more people to hear. Since it is a repeat, I've added some additional content to make it somewhat fresh for old and new listeners alike. And we're going to start right now. And what I mean by right now is after a word from our main sponsor, Carpet Cleaner America. Carpet Cleaner America's counter-rotating brush technology began in Austria in 1979 and continues to be a force in the industry all across the world. Our CRB machines are sold in over 58 countries and several territories. These machines are legendary, dependable, and built to last a lifetime and perhaps even longer. With all that history comes a little bit of wisdom. Our machines are dependable enough to help you get more from your carpet cleaning process. Use our Pro or TM series machines to accomplish any number of tasks in your clients' homes or businesses. From carpet to tile to vinyl floors and, yes, even hardwood, using our dry absorbent compound media, Carpet Cleaner American machines work on them all. From pile lifting to deep vacuuming, from agitating your pre-spray before extraction cleaning to low moisture encapsulation. From carpet to tile, we brush it all and we pick it up, too. Ask your local distributor for an Austrian machine made to last a lifetime. Or find us at carpetcleaner-usa.com. Here's that bonus content I promised you because you're listening to a repeat. So, enjoy. I've been certified. I was thinking the other day, remembering my first IICRC certification class, and it brought back a ton of fond memories. The excitement of learning something fresh and new that I could take to my customers and dazzle them with my newfound brilliance. But a funny thing happened when I told my customers about the wonderfulness of IICRC certification and how wonderful a person I was for having that. They could not have cared less. And I was kind of dumbstruck by their lack of understanding, their lack of knowledge, and their general idiotic behavior. This was a big deal. But when I asked why they didn't care, it was an amazing thing for me. They expected it. They expected me to be the ultimate professional, regardless of whether I had a certification or not, regardless of whatever industry I was in, regardless of anything else. And it finally got through to my little pea brain that the customer, at the very least, expected me to know exactly what we were doing when it came to their flooring or their furnishings. Believing in myself because I was certified that the world would be the path to my door was really my mistake. And because of that mistake, I would go on to make several other mistakes involving the lack of understanding of exactly what my customers were looking for when they purchased cleaning and maintenance services. What I discovered in my own mind at that point was kind of a watershed event for the company. 
I found out they were not interested in the cleaning and maintenance process at all. I never had a client ask me what brand my truck mount or my portable or my buffer was. They were paying for the result of my effort. Whether I used a broom, an auto scrubber, a single disc rotary machine, a carpet extractor, dry absorbent compound, they didn't care how I got there. They wanted the result when I was finished. And slowly but surely, that realization kicked in firmly for my company at the time. When selling services, whether certified or not, the customer is only interested in the result and doesn't care how you arrive there. They're not paying for the knowledge, the certification, or my dashing good looks. They're paying for the result. And we decided at that point in time to become a results-based company. Other ideas began to formulate in thinking about how are we going to get customers to think about our company differently than our competitors. And we began to understand that our customers would feel and see the level of confidence we gained from becoming certified and then bringing that confidence into their cleaning of their particular furnishings and or flooring. Because we were certified, we felt that confidence in our ability to know the precise application of the product, the process, the, the machines, and all the other things. This confidence was then sold to the customer. And the customer, in turn, became more comfortable with choosing our company. So our company began to learn two things. We began to sell only two things from that day forward. We sold comfort and we sold confidence. It was the only thing everybody else wasn't selling in the same marketplace. The only reason we could sell those things is because our certification and training brought us to the level of being that confident and how we could deliver the cleaning services. We, I thought in the beginning that knowledge was the only thing I needed to make that happen. And that was a calculated error on my part. I had to teach myself and the people who worked for me that the certification process of IIC or C certified was just another tool, like a broom or an extractor, to use in the confidence building process to give services to our customers. It's only a tool, but it helped build stronger minds in how we were delivering that skill set into the marketplace. The company with the stronger skill set usually wins. Don't forget and don't let the fog or the detractors of training tell you that you don't need that. Having a certification is just as important as having a wand, a hose, an engine, and all the other things that we use every day. But just remember, it's just one of the building blocks to success. Tom Hill began his cleaning industry career in the 1960s, working in the dry cleaning industry and being introduced to cleaning area rugs while working as a teenager in Sacramento, California. After graduating UC Davis and being drafted into military service during the Vietnam era, Tom spent five years on the U.S. Army Reserve as a drill sergeant after the end of the Vietnam War. Seeking employment, Tom moved to Fresno and Central California and began working full-time in the carpet cleaning industry with Steam Services and Ed York. Tom was responsible for helping to build carpet cleaning training programs for Fiber Cleaning Schools of America and writing training manuals for disaster cleanup franchises. 
Tom also served as technical director for the Society of Cleaning Technicians during this time. Tom went back into the cleaning business, moving to Hawaii in 1979 and managing a restoration and carpet cleaning company in Honolulu. Coming back to the mainland, Tom was hired back at Steam Services, with a new owner, Steve Brandt, now running the place, as technical director. As an individual shareholder in IICUC, now called IICRC, Tom spent many years on that organization's board of directors and several years in leadership in the executive committee, serving as president in 1978 and 79 during the transition from profit to nonprofit status. During that time, Tom spent years on the road delivering IICRC certification classes all across the U.S. and several foreign countries, and consulting for industry-related entities. Some of Tom's clients included DuPont, the Stainmaster Division, Shaw Industries, Steamway International, Hydromaster Corporation, and the Carpet and Rug Institute, along with the World Floor Covering Association. Life on the road was taxing, and he decided to relieve his old friend Ken Waymead of the duties of operating the administrative arm of the IICRC, Kenway Consultants, by purchasing the company and transitioning into IICRC management. Under the direction of Tom and his team, the IICRC flourished. Several new training categories were developed, and thousands more technicians were certified and trained. IICRC began to develop standards and gained more significant footing in the industry, especially with governmental agencies having ANSI accreditation added to the IICRC standards writing process. Tom retired in 2015, leaving the industry after nearly 50 years of service. Mr. Tom Hill. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I really Wonderful. appreciate this invitation. You know, and it's always good to see you. We, we've shared a lot of time on the road together and we've done a lot of things, but during the course of getting to know you when we were volunteering together with the IICRC and spending some time together where we could go to dinner and we could talk, I didn't realize how deep you were in the carpet cleaning field until we got to share some of that information back and forth. And so if you wouldn't mind, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a series of questions here, just kind of to figure out the idea of why people get into this business in the first place. Because you and I have found that uh, it's a great industry to be a part of. We've made great friendships here, uh, not only ours, but with other people that we both know uh, together. And it's just one of those great things to do. So I'm going to ask you the first question is, when you got into the carpet cleaning business, and I know it was probably back during the 1970s, maybe even before that, I'm not exactly sure, but kind of tell us your story about where you came from and why you chose to be in this particular industry. Okay. I didn't actually start in the carpet cleaning business. I started in the dry cleaning industry, cleaning clothes, freeze, that kind of thing in the dry cleaners when I was in high school, when I was 16 years old. So that would have been about 65, 66. And went from there to college. And while in college, I continued to work as an as a cleaner in the dry cleaning business. But the company that owned the cleaners also owned a uh, rug cleaning plant and carpet cleaning plant. And so I got to work in there a little bit and I really enjoyed learning of carpets and rugs. And And in those days, water damage restoration was not in existence. What we did is we went out to the wet carpet, we took it in and hung it up in the dry room and then tried to stretch it back in after shrunk. Never really got them all back in, but that was, that was rest. But, but the carpet cleaning part was all 
in-plant rug cleaning. We had a little bit of on-location with shampoo, rotary brush type things, but that was that was about the end of it. It's all commercial because Oriental rugs and area rugs kind of dominated the marketplace in the residential. Wall-to-wall carpet got in in the picture. Early 70s started to get really popular, and and there was a guy in Fresno, California, by the name of Ed York, who came up with a piece of equipment called a vapor vac, which was then called steam hot water extraction. And it was uh, sort of a knockoff of something being put together by Bill Wisdom under Thorosteam and, and Arlen Knight and those guys. And it looked like two big coffee pots burns on a on a. Sure, I think, I think I've seen pictures of those, yeah. Yeah, and and it was all stainless steel, and it had a 40 PSI pump and, and, and a little bitty positive displacement vacuum. And in order to get the carpet to extract it all while you did it, you had a 65-pound weighted drag tool to pull. So unloading this stainless steel espresso pot and, and uh, drag tool and hoses and haul it all up the stairs, and of course, it only held 15 gallons of water, so you had to carry bucketfuls of water back and forth. So my first job in the carpet cleaning industry was buckets of water. I got pretty good, pretty good shape during that time because I was carrying 40 pounds of an arm because I had to do two buckets at a time or you couldn't well, keep up. Sure. And 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 the thing that amazed everybody was the dirty water coming out the other side it was like fudge because these carpets, they were all nylon, high-low popcorn carpet that you can't even buy now but they they didn't look dirty but when you cleaned them it came out three shades lighter and really really muddy water anyway we bought one of those machines from ed york and it was called VaporVac. and he had a an organization he was trying to found called steam services associates because the steam services was the company that sold the vapor vac okay and Steam Services Associates became uh, later Society of Cleaning Technicians. They changed the name because they didn't want it to be tied to only one brand. But what happened with that is the reason he started that organization was because he would sell people these, quote, new machines mm-hmm. that nobody had ever used, and they didn't know how to use it. They didn't know what to, what to do with it, how to make it work or anything. And so he started these classes to teach them how to do that. And what turned out that all the people in the business out there that were buying these new machines, Rug Doctor had one, Thorosteam had one, Bain Clean had one. They all had these machines, but nobody had a training program to teach people how to use it or what to do. Bain Clean was the only one that did. They finally did. So he, he got this machine system in place. And then he started the training program and all these other people wanted training. So when he started doing that, he started charging people for the class. He didn't charge the people that bought the machine. The training came with the machine. But if you didn't buy his machine, you could go and sign up for the training. And the the training was done by a young man by the name of Ron Tony. And I've heard of him too. Yeah. Yeah. Ron was his, his senior operator. In fact, Ron was his only operator on his vaporback carpet cleaning company because he ran the company so that the training class, he had some place to show people how to use it. So he would actually do carpet cleaning in Fresno with steam services name on it. And, 
and be able to do that. So anyway, was the first painting, Ron was the first instructor, so to speak. But Ron wasn't up to speed on a lot of the things that have now. We didn't we didn't have anything like like PowerPoint, of course, and we certainly we didn't even have slide projector options and everything. So basically what Ron was doing was drawing carpet styles and carpet pictures and machines and stuff. And it turned out that there was a huge demand for this training. And there was also no way of saying that you took it. So after completion of a course in carpet cleaning with Ed York's program, which he later named Fiber Cleaning Schools of America, he started a program where he would give you a certificate at the end of the class that shows that you had completed it. Sure. And then you could put that in your brag book when you went out to talk to your customers or whatever. And it was called a COP, Certificate of Proficiency. Okay. And I don't know how you can be proficient after only three days, but they were. And <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and so anyway, yeah. yeah, we now do it in two, I know. <laughs> but, anyway, yeah, exactly. but anyway, so I I was working in in Sacramento, because that's where I went to college at UC Davis. And at part-time in the cleaning business, I graduated from school and Uncle Sam came knocking. Vietnam was raging away. Sure. So I got I got uh, drafted and went, went in the military for a while. But while I was in the early stages of my military experience, Mr. Nixon or President Nixon decided to bring all the boys home so suddenly there was a lot of extra people in the military. So I got moved over into the reserve status, but I first had to go through a training program to become a drill sergeant. So I'm a, I'm a professionally trained army drill sergeant, and I had to do that for four, four or five years as a reservist. The interesting thing about that is what I learned there was how to teach adults that don't want to be there, something that they need to know. Interesting. Because the Army is trying to teach you things that you don't want to learn and you don't really want to be there most of the time. And so that was to me later because I was teaching carpet cleaning technicians that their boss sent them to a class and they didn't want to be there. And they were much like Army trainees in some ways. And you had to kind of get in their face once in a while, that kind of thing. <laughs> but anyway, that's a... That's a that's a side side mark. Remark. Right, right. But hopefully you didn't have to get in their face the same way you did when you were a drill sergeant. I mean, I think that's a no. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> no, you had to keep the language clean and all that stuff. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but anyway, so after I got out of the army, I was kind of at loose ends, and my wife—I was married by that time—and my wife Carolee was uh, expecting our first child, and I needed a job, and so I went back to the place where I was working and it turned out that he didn't have a job for me anymore unless I wanted to just carry water again and I wasn't ready for that I had a college degree I was important then and so I got a contact from that fellow by the name of Ed York that I mentioned mm -hmm. and he wanted me to come and move to Fresno and work with Ron Tony and do training and develop training courses specifically a correspondence course, which is what we would now call an online course. We didn't do internet right. then. It was right. with mail it back and forth. Uh, so we developed a correspondence course and we had our classroom courses. 
And as a part of that, he wanted me to develop a test or exam that people had to take to prove that they were proficient. So their certificate of proficiency actually meant something. And that test and exam. And the trouble is most carpet cleaners were struggling. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of, by the time they paid for Ed's course, they didn't have any more money for testing and all that stuff. So Ed sent me down to the state of California Department of uh, Education to try to get the, his school approved as a trade school. And that way we would be able to get GI Bill and government support and financing for the people to come. Mm-hmm. And turned out the Department of Education didn't recognize carpet cleaning as a profession at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and you could have been put in as janitorial, but then the carpet cleaning class wouldn't have been applicable to, as far as they were concerned. Sure. So Ed decided, I will start my own institute. So he started the International Institute of Carpet and Upholstery Cleaning, ah. IICUC. I-I-C-U-C. And that, yes. that organization would approve the, the tests and approve the school and approve the instructor as qualified for the people to become certified. They would get a certificate and that's what certified means. They got a certificate. So anyway, it was funny because there was only one approved school, one approved teacher and one approved course. And so we couldn't get any because it was kind of proprietary. So suddenly other organizations that had their training classes started up started asking for recognition by the IICUC. And that kind of spun it off by itself. So that IICUC started getting other instructors, other courses, and Rana and I were still teaching classes for Ed York, but he taught the first class. I guess I was the first student. That may be why my certification number is number one. Ah, I, I wondered Actually, about that for all these years. I remember you telling me that story that your certification number was one. I just thought that was hogwash. I thought, yeah, you know. No, I, knew I, actually, well, have, while, I actually have my certification card somewhere. It still says uh, number one on it. But it was more or less honorary because with the IICRC started up, IICUC started up, it was it was starting at numbers at 100. <laughs> okay, so it was ceremonial. But you were still, you were still legitimately the first student. I was because I heard I was, another. I heard another story about that. That the first class, the first course, was a one-day course, and it offered carpet cleaning, upholstery cleaning, water damage, and fire restoration. In in that one day, was that? Am I accurate with that? It was three, it was three days. It was that three days certificate of proficiency course. Okay. It offered all those things. Also, carpet repair was in there too. Oh, carpet repair too. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Luckily, you went to three days, and when you added repair. Yeah. Over over the years, they spun it off. The first one to come off was upholstery cleaning. Then there was a carpet cleaning one and upholstery cleaning one. Then later was odor control and water damage restoration. Uh, water damage was originally just one day because they didn't have all this stuff about sure. uh, about how to really do it. <laughs> well, the science hadn't really caught up at that point. So what you just described was basically the birth of what we now know today as IICRC. You know, That's that was right. the birthplace of that. And you were a part of that birthing of this baby that has now got, I think we're closing in shortly on at least a million certified technicians. I know the numbers oh, are getting pretty high. 
Uh, I don't, I haven't seen the latest ones, but I know we're going to get very close to that. So congratulations and thank you for being a part of that. But I know that there was also some, I heard another uh, story that you told me one time, and I'm sure that it was after that all this was started that you were doing the training and everything. And then you ended up somehow in the island of Hawaii on uh, Oahu cleaning carpets. Yes. Well, yeah. Why don't you give us a little background on that one too, because I think that's always interesting. Well, in, in about 1978, I was then president of IICU, which was still a privately owned for-profit mm-hmm. company. Set, it was originally set up by Ed York and a group of his friends. And I, I just I was kind of getting burnt out on it a little bit. So I decided to get back into the actual cleaning business, the hands-on part of the business again, instead of just the, the ivory tower thing where you're writing cla- classes and all that stuff. So anyway, I I left Ed's company and I had two job offers, one in San Francisco by a fellow by the name of Keith Williams, who was a owner of a large commercial carpet cleaning company and a, and a lab. He was he was a scientist there about about the textile industry. Okay. And the other was by from a fellow by the name of Leith Anderson and his wife. And they, they lived in Honolulu. And that, uh, that intrigued me. I mean, who I'm, wouldn't want to live in paradise, you know? I'm sure it did, yeah. So, so I decided to go that direction for a while. And my wife and I and our kids up and moved to Hawaii, where we worked in the carpet cleaning industry there. I was still ICRC president for another year by remote control. But, of course, then it was just one meeting a year or two meetings a year for boards and the board of directors met in Ed's kitchen. So it wasn't a big problem, (laughs) but the working in Hawaii was very interesting because that's where I also got into restoration business a little bit. I had Ed, Ed, when I worked for him, started an organization called disaster cleanup, which was to be a franchise type organization in fire and water restoration. And I had to write a bunch of manuals for that. And the Andersons were people that had bought one of these licenses or franchises to, to operate. Okay. And that's how I met them. And then I went to his place in, in Hawaii and I really liked it. And so I decided to go there. And so my wife and I moved our family over there and I worked there for, for six or seven years. And turned out it was about that time that I had a a hope to own that company because I was just working as a as a manager for them. I didn't really own it. Mm-hmm. And then their son, who was playing professional volleyball in Italy, decided he didn't want to do that anymore, I guess. So he came back home and he took over the company and that kind of wiped out my hopes for owning the company someday. And so I said, okay, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. So turns out I went ended up with my friend, Steve Brandt, who was uh, the president of Steam Services then. Same Steam Services, different owner years different later. Older, different. Okay. Yeah. He, he gave me a job as technical director, again, helping design equipment, helping to test chemicals, helping to teach people how to use them, and putting on training classes, and being uh, teaching IICRC classes and that stuff. About 1985, I was back in Fresno then, a big, huge company by the name of DuPont started a, sold a product called Stainmaster Carpet into the carpet industry. I think I've heard of that one, yeah. Yeah, and they spent $200 million on promoting this product, and it just took off like wildfire. They didn't have any idea how successful this was going to be. 
Mm. It was so successful, they had a problem. Because what was selling it was they had a warranty that if you got spots or spills or stains on this carpet, they'd replace it if they couldn't get them off. And they didn't know anything about how to clean it. They just knew how to make it. And so the head of the stain master department was a fellow by the name of Bill Doan. You probably met Bill. I have met Bill, yes. Yeah. Just a wonderful person. Just he truly is. Hope someday you can get him on this podcast. He can tell you this part of it. But Bill decided they needed to have some way to hire carpet cleaners to go out before they replace a carpet that somebody had just spilled coffee on. They needed to have at least somebody knows what they're doing, try to clean it and maybe save the replacement cost. Because uh, you weigh cleaning against replacement is a big difference. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so Bill came to, he started with going to the Stanley Steamer Franchise Organization to get them to do it. And the entire cleaning industry outside of Stanley Steamer kind of was in an uprising because that was restraint of trade. I mean, that was giving all their business to one privately held company. So he needed to have a company that wasn't privately held, that was kind of able to to refer people that were somehow trained and qualified. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, the IICUC was, had changed their name to IICRC, Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Mm -hmm. And the executive administrator was a fellow by the name of Kenway Mead. Another guy that, that's yeah. a fantastic pillar in this industry. Yes, he is. Uh, and, well, he's gone now. <laughs> right, but I still think of him as that someone that was really the, the person behind the scenes that really pushed things forward in, in that. Well, time. much more than most people know. Because at that time, IICRC was almost bankrupt. And they had like, like maybe 5,000, 7,500 technicians in their registry. And Kenway was running the show. And he, he was approached by Bill Doan from Stainmaster. And he said, we need to have this company, but we need them to be affiliated with no privately held organization. Right. IICRC was privately held at the time. So with Kenway took IICRC's lawyer, Mark Hansen, and worked with the people at DuPont. And they put IICRC through a process to become a 501c6 nonprofit trade organization. And that was really like pulling teeth because the individuals, the privately held people didn't want to let go because IICRC was their baby too. Um, yeah, one of the, well, let me let me just uh, if I can stop you there. Just explain what you meant by privately held because it was changing from IICUC, which was kind of an Ed York position, and it was his for-profit organization. And then yeah. there were you mentioned the individuals. There were some individual shareholders. Is that correct? Right. It it was all for-profit, just like your business or or any other cleaning industry business. It was owned by a group of individuals literally owned, and if there were any profits, which there were, were going to these individuals. Mm -hmm. At that time, the IICUC didn't make any money, so there wasn't a whole lot of profit, but but it was that kind of an organization. It was a corporation, a sta regular standard California corporation. And so it was those individuals that included people like Dave Dudley, myself, Ed York, Wanda York, guy named Joe Bricado, uh, guy named Frank Sultan, 
these people were the individuals that started it and, and kind of nurtured it. Okay. Well, most of those people had, had no problem giving up their shares, but mm. there was a couple of other guys, Daryl and Rod Paulson and Lee Pemberton, who had acquired shares over the years before it went to nonprofit. They weren't in the original founding group, but they were, they were people that bought shares in those early years. Mm-hmm. Because that's how Ed got some money from it. Was he sold them shares? Oh, um, makes sense. Yeah, and and so anyway, like I got mine because when I left the company, Ed owed me some money from in back pay and vacation and everything, and he paid me with with five hundred shares of IICC. <laughs> okay, and you were okay, and you were okay to take that? I mean, yeah, know. I just put it in a safety deposit box and forgot about it for a while. Sure. But anyway, those guys all eventually sold their shares back with the exception of the two Paulson brothers and Lee Pemberton. They all own shares today, but in a, they own shares in a nonprofit, which makes the shares really virtually not worth anything except right. prestige and bragging rights. But Well, they also are a shareholder of the organization. They, they have that, that ability to, to uh, be a shareholder, go to the shareholder meetings, that sort of thing. Yeah, but during the shift over to from for profit to nonprofit, it became very clear from input from the IRS that that was a very unusual beast. There were almost no other approved nonprofits that had shareholders. It was kind of a unique situation. But anyway, that goes on today. Those people are still shareholders in the organization. I'm not. I turned my shares back in because at one point I was getting tired of all this traveling and working in Fresno, and I. I decided that we were sending all our certification exams to Kenway's company up in Vancouver, Washington. And I kind of spent a lot of time with him. I became close friends with him. And it became clear that he wanted to retire out of the business. I mean, he was getting up there and and decided he didn't want to do this anymore. So he and I came to an agreement. I could get off the road and buy his company and he could sell it to me. And so we had had a transition over a five and a half year period where I bought the company 20% per year for over five years mm-hmm. and paid him for it. And I, at the same time, took over his role as executive administrator of the organization. I did that for over 20 years and became the IICRC executive administrator. At the time we started, the IICRC had about 10,000 technicians. We had annual budget of about $100,000. When we left 20 years later, we had multiplied all that by about 10, 15 fold. Yeah, considerably. It's one of my fondest memories of when I was president of the IICRC at the time. I got to work during your transition period with Kenway. So I got to work with both you guys on a pretty regular basis. And I got to tell you, it was there were only a few of us that had that fit in that transition time. And it was one of my fondest memories of getting to work with both of you. Kenway Mead was an absolute gem of a person. Just knowing him as a friend was wonderful. And, and you got to work with him every day. And I always remember his absolute calm demeanor, no matter what was happening. Because there were some upheavals in, in the uh, boardroom occasionally about money started coming into the organization. and. The DuPont folks had kind of stepped back, and, and we met some wonderful people through that. A good friend of both of ours, Mr. Saigant, was part of that DuPont group, uh, mm-hmm. worked for Bill. And in order to, you know, to meet someone like Cy that you and I called a personal friend and 
we've all gone fishing together and we've had these wonderful stories that we tell. He was an absolute joy to be around. I'm so sorry that he's not here that I would love to interview him for this podcast because you know the conversation he and I would have would be <laughs> different than the one you and I are having because he was just such a fun person. So the, the industry got to know all of these wonderful folks because of that relationship with, with DuPont. And Kenway was smart enough to see the writing on the wall and, and really grab onto that sale and and change everything from a for-profit corporation to a not-for-profit corporation to fill the bill. And then we watched the organization begin to take off with your and Kenway's leadership, with, with DuPont kind of giving us that influx of, of technicians that we needed at the time. And it just, I remember taking off. I mean, I don't have a card number one. My card is just over 10,000. But still, I was one of those, I think it was 1987 when I took my first ISRC course and was assigned my number. And just that organization has done so much for this industry. And, and a lot of it's because of what you and Kenway were able to put together, along with Mr. Hanson. Let's not forget Mark. He was a wonderful person. And rest in peace, Mark. He's no longer with us either. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny. All these people we keep talking about are gone now and it makes me feel ancient. <laughs> But they're not all gone. Some of the some of the good guys are still around. Dan Bernazzani and Barry Costa, of course, and and probably the guy that did the most that people don't remember is Larry Cooper, and and the things that he did. We wouldn't have standards at IICRC if it wasn't for Larry Cooper, and got the standards going. And of course, you you can't talk about those early years without mentioning Jeff Bishop, because Jeff kind of pioneered the way in a lot of things. When we started going into restoration, I remember Jeff Bishop and myself and Lee Pemberton were going to teach the first fire restoration class, and nobody taught one before. (laughs) So we were in Philadelphia, and we decided that we would take turns teaching, and we would one guy would teach from 8 to 10. We would take a break, and we'd critique it a little bit. The next guy would teach from 10 to noon, and then we'd have lunch, and we'd critique it some more. We'd meet in a coffee shop, and it kind of went on that way until we finally decided what we had as a course. And that was adding into fire restoration. So ICRC was branching more into restoration and, and not just in the cleaning side. It wasn't even until much later that IICRC actually got into the janitorial proper in that side of it, hard surface cleaning and stuff, which is, of course, your baby. And you're in that in, in a big way. So I th- there's so many key people and I think if there's anything I can emphasize, it's the people and the behind the scenes people like Ken Way, like the, Steve Brandt, that you never really know what they did. Claude Blackburn, for example, practically invented the science of water restoration and wrote a book called about it and mm-hmm. got the first Keith Williams Award. Keith Williams, I mentioned earlier, as a scientist that was developing a lot of stuff. With, he developed a lot of the technical stuff around stain resistant carpet and stuff like that, that no, people don't know that he worked with DuPont quite a bit. He worked with Standard Oil and a few of the big boys like that. He, yeah, and, 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 and Mr. Williams is gone also, I believe. And I thought, yeah. I recall that it was you who actually put him up that we have the ISCRC has an award called the Keith Williams Award because of that. When someone makes a contribution from the science community to this organization, they are, uh, they are uh, responded with the Keith Williams Award. And I think that's, you know, we, we've never forgotten where we've come from. And I think that's one of the cool things about this industry. 
And so the listeners that are listening to this podcast, you going back to the Wild West days of what the, uh, what the <laughs> industry used to be like, going back from the days where you were shampoo carpets. I remember watching you at a seminar one time where you bet somebody a brand new truck mount that you could make take a shampoo machine and make the carpet look as good as what they could do with their truck mount. You never said you would get it cleaner, but you could make it look better because you were a wizard with that tool. And I think a lot of people, the old school methodologies that were out there, you did the best you could with them at the time because you were limited to what you had available to you. Yeah, it was. Those early classes were kind of fun. Sometimes you would get some know-it-all cantankerous old person that thought they knew everything about the business and usually had to find a way to calm them down a little bit. And usually we would get to the hands-on part and I would, I would start with the rotary and I would have it running and I would let go with one hand and hand it over to him. And you know, if you've never been on a rotary before, the first time you grab it, it throws you. Oh yeah. And it would usually throw them and, and they didn't, that, that would kind of put them in their place. Oh, there's a way to, there's a technique here. Yes. <laughs> Even something as simple as running a shampoo machine, there's a technique. <laughs> well, right. And you think about the amount of friction you would have underneath that with the residential carpet. There's a yeah. lot of that that's happening out there. So again, what we are, what we're talking here on the Keep It Clean podcast is we're talking to a, an actual pioneer in this industry who came from before internet and before, probably even before a lot of local trade associations. Is that correct? Yeah, there was there was uh, one called, you're going to love this, it was called AIDS, but it's now called ASCR. Mm-hmm. It was originally started as a National Institute of Rug Cleaning, NIRC. And then another one, which was Steam Service Associates, which became Society of Cleaning Technicians. And then there was Bill Bain's organization, and those were that was the trade associations. It wasn't until later that all the regional ones started up and got going, and they all bought shares in IICRC when it be, went into a nonprofit mode. Right. So except, other than those few remaining individuals, all the other shareholders in IICRC are trade groups, nonprofit trade groups. And so that was what saved them from the IRS's standpoint, what, what sure. allowed them to become nonprofit. And, and so in the beginning of the, of the classes, let's kind of work our way back to that where you and Ron Tony were out there uh, teaching these classes. And then I think uh, Jeff Bishop got involved in the training at that point. There were new players coming into the marketplace. And one of them was out of Denver, Colorado, another yeah. very good friend of ours, uh, Mr. Ralph Bloss. I yeah. never really got to spend as much time with, with Ralph as a lot of the other guys did. But every time that I'd go to Denver, he would always take me and sit me down and explain how things work. And always, it was one of those uh, interesting things. He always thanked me for fighting the good fight when I was a volunteer in the organization. He said, nobody uh, realizes how hard people work to move this industry forward. And and that's another reason that we're, I'm, I'm kind of going back in time with the podcast is to explain to people who are in the industry now that you're really standing on the shoulders of greatness. People like Ralph Lawson, let's put Bill Bain in the same category, even though Mr. Bain had some disagreements with the way the ISRC trained, I got to sit down with him a couple of times and he explained to me once that he just didn't think it was a good idea to train your technicians. He only wanted to train the business owners. He didn't want to train the technicians because he felt the technicians would become competition to the people who bought his franchise. And, and I just said, I, I don't think that would happen, but we're going to respectfully agree to uh, disagree. And he was a charming man. He was, he was, again, he's also no longer with us. 
And so I think it, it's nice to have that history of the way that it was. They were competitors, but yet they understood to move the industry forward. Sometimes they had to put that competition aside and get involved in the volunteer side of this and, and move the industry forward. Is that what you found? Yeah, I think everybody worked together. They, like you mentioned earlier, there were some cantankerous board meetings. People didn't always agree with everybody about everything, but they would fight it out tooth and nail at the board meeting and then I'll go out to dinner and have a glass of wine or beer together. Yes. And, and you know, my it was always Larry story. Cooper's birthday, for example. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to get Larry on the podcast in the not too distant future. For those of the listeners who aren't aware of this, Larry Cooper is the actual the gentleman who actually manages and uh, produces the uh, the experience shows that are in the East Coast and the West Coast. He's got a show coming up in April in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which would be the next show coming up. All the other shows this year were canceled because of the pandemic. But yeah, you mentioned that. You know, my first meeting that I attended as a board member, I was just voted on the board that morning as in the shareholder meeting and attended my first board meeting, uh, that board voted down a motion to adjourn, which I had never seen before or since. And I remember thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into with this group? Because they really fought the fights that they believed in and, and moving the standards forward and moving the examinations forward to be really better than what they were in the past when basically you and Jeff wrote them. And not that they were bad, but there was more science coming in and we were learning more about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. those board meetings were kind of interesting. They, they didn't change much over the years. The players changed, the topics changed, but the passion never did go away. And I think that's important to know that people in the cleaning industry are passionate about it. And like the first time I went to Dalton, Georgia, the carpet capital of the world, to try to represent the cleaning industry, I went to the Carpet and Rug Institute and I stood on their steps and they wouldn't let me come in because I was just a lowly carpet cleaner. Later, those things changed. They changed a lot. But and thanks to people like Cy and, and others that, that introduced us into that world. And of course, Bill Doan and Al Ludke and a lot of these people, the scientists started to recognize that people in the cleaning business weren't just yokels. They had some science behind it. They knew what they were doing. They maybe didn't have the $40 words to name it. But they had to deal with, with fluid dynamics. They had to deal with air pressure. They had to deal with vacuum. They had to deal with water pressure. They had to deal with temperature, chemistry. It goes on and on. And it, they did have that passion. In those early days, almost all of the on-location cleaning guys were mom-pop businesses, owner-operators. Mm -hmm. Or if they, it was a owner of the business and he had one or two helpers. If he was a big-time guy, he had two trucks of operation with two crews. And... Then later, the, the whole thing branched out with franchises and everything going different directions. And today, some of the p companies in the carpet cleaning business are huge and attract a lot of attention from some of the biggest players, people like Electrolux and DuPont and those guys. And Sure. It's kind of interesting to, to know how it's evolved. I'm not really tuned into it as much anymore as I used to be. I've been retired now a little over five years, and it's amazing how fast things change in this business. Even today, I... Couldn't tell you what the latest technology is. I still clean my own carpets, but that's about it. <laughs> okay. Well, at least you're cleaning them. I mean, you're, you'll always be part of the club, Tom. You'll always be someone that I look at as a pioneer, like I said. And it's funny because you're not that much older than I am. I, I, I always tease you about that, that you are my much older brother. 
but you're not that much older than I am, but you've been doing this way longer than I have. I spent the early part of my career doing different things, but you were always there to help somebody. And, and that's really what I learned about the industry was, and you see it now today on the bulletin boards and you see it on some of the uh, Facebook pages and things like that, where you know, a lot of cleaners, they like helping, they like giving advice. And that's really what I felt when I got to meet you and Larry and Cy and, and Dan Bernazani, you mentioned earlier, as we call him now, Dr. Dan Bernazani, he got his PhD. And wonderful folks like that, that just really wanted to do something for their industry that they love so much, because you mentioned the passion, and they would help. I remember watching you talk to people after conference sessions, or even after classes, where you had done a whole day of training, and then you still took another 20, 25, 30 minutes to speak to students that had very specific questions. And I always remembered that as something that when I reached that point in my career, that's the kind of person I want to be is someone who's willing to share and willing to help. And so uh, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for that. You've put me in a much different position than I was in. And I always appreciated that. For the listeners of the podcast, when you became an instructor in the ICRC, if you were going to a already uh, approved school, you had to work under the tutelage of another instructor. And Tom was my instructor mentor and let me work in his shadow for a couple of days. Once by making me just sit in front of the classroom for the whole day, uh, actually for two whole days, which we'll tell that story in another podcast somewhere. But it really, he, he made me understand what it was like to be looking at it from the other side. And I've always appreciated that. Maybe not so much at the time, but I did afterwards because I, I, I see it now. And I was telling him how we're involved with teaching now to this little you know, camera lens that we're looking into rather than being live with the people that like we like to be and how that's changing. And he, he said it changes and that's what you have to do. So how do you think, Tom, when you look at it from the angle of what we're doing here, how do you think it, it would, you would fare in this new world of talking to a camera lens? How would you feel about that? I'd have to adapt. I haven't done it much. I think it could be done. You would have to get some wide angle lenses so I could do my demonstrations. <laughs> yeah, or I have a wide angle lens just because of who I am and I need a wide angle lens to get me all on camera. But yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, the, the cleaning industry, and this is where you're, you're a carpet cleaner at heart. And you adapted multiple times in your career to get to that point. And so Part of the reason for inviting, I'm not going to call the old group the dinosaurs, but we did back in the day when, when you and I were talking about some of the old guys that were on the board of directors of ISCRC at the time. I was a young buck back in the day, and now I am a decrepit, ancient old reptile that's going to be slinking into my own pond here of retirement, hopefully very soon. But it's just so unique and different to see how the industry is still kind of feeling that same way that, that you guys did. So when you started working with trade associations, how did that whole process take place of, of, of generating and changing the information flow? Well, the trade associations worked hard at trying to find benefits for their members. They wanted to be able to prove that it was worthwhile. And the, the one thing they could sell was technical information. So, so they put out bulletins, technical bulletins. They put out training classes. They had conventions and workshops. And that's the way they gave themselves credibility. Uh, so we were already kind of in that training business. And so it became it became a natural transition for, for me and a few of the other key people, Jeff, for example. But the associations didn't always do well. Sometimes they 
They almost would dwindle down to very few members. People didn't want to spend their money on something that they could get other places. The internet has really made that very real because you can find out just about anything on Wikipedia or on, on YouTube. The only problem is you can't be sure it's true and accurate. And where with these trade associations, you're in a live meeting and you're talking to somebody that you know has done this for a living, it's a little different. So I think the, the credentialing of instructors is critical for the future. The instructors have to be somebody that people can believe, know what they're talking about. And it can't just be that you become an instructor because you anoint yourself. And those days are gone. And that's really important. I think also the trade associations are now more representative of their members in a different way. And that is to the consumer reports style of of the public, the people that are interested in some kind of credibility and that kind of thing. And you don't, consumer reports is always dealing with products. Well, in this business, it's not products, it's service. The product is the service. And the service is dependent upon the technician knowing what he or she is doing and talking about. I remember you saying in a lot of the training classes that I attended where you were the trainer, you always said, it's the singer, not the song. You know, it's the mission that makes the difference. You can hand somebody all the tools, but if they don't know how, if they don't understand why they're doing it, it, it's a harder thing to do. And I've always tried to bring that to my training based on, you know, the fact that when you mentored me in this, you kind of taught me that and, and how to focus on the student. So I'm going to just, I'm going to ask you to go back to your carpet cleaning days back. Let, you can go with Hawaii, you can go with, with uh, Sacramento, wherever you'd, you'd want to be. But give me an idea of maybe what you learned in that first year of carpet cleaning. What, was, what were some of the challenges that you remember facing? And then what were some of the things that you did to, to overcome that? Oh, gosh. In those days, the, the biggest challenge was that the people didn't understand what clean was. It was all about appearance. And it's because all those years, there's a shampooing and all that. We had to actually train the customer to understand that what we were doing was removing soil and contamination. That's cleaning, not just making it look nice, which is what we used to do. That was hard. The other part of it, as far as customer attitude, was all about the reality of what their perception was as far as dry time. Carpets were wet when you got finished. That was a big deal. And some of the people didn't like that. And it took a lot of people, without a trained technician, it was very easy to get the carpet so wet it stayed wet for a few days and got sour. And that gave the whole cleaning business bad name. So we had to do a lot of actual demonstrations. In our commercial side of my business, I, I spent a lot of time doing free cleanings to clean a room to show people that it wouldn't stay wet for a, a couple of weeks and that it, right. and that it would be cleaner. It would be healthier. Some of the people that really helped us with that was people like Dr. Michael Berry from the EPA coming in and defining clean. And, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book about the indoor environment. And, and, and I think that it became, that cleaning became more about a health issue, which is very important in today's pandemic days, but, and, and less about an appearance issue. But you can, if you're in this business, you can never forget that if it doesn't look good, the customer's not going to be happy. It has to look good, too. Well, Tom, I think that we're going to stop at that point because I don't think you can say anything better than that right now. 
about what our listeners are going to be looking for. I was looking for a, a way to inspire them, and he really knocked it out of the park today. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate your time. Again, I love going back and hearing the stories about how this industry really got started. And I'm sure there's guys that were mentors of yours back in the day that, that you recall. So from the Keep It Clean podcast and, and all the listeners that we have out there, Tom Hill, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your service to this industry and, and kind of getting us moving in that direction. Thank you for your service to our country uh, back in the days when you were the drill sergeant. We appreciate that too. And wish you well in your retirement. I hope that uh, you have a nice, long, easy task of kicking back and enjoying some of the wine that I know you love and enjoy that. So Tom, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it so much. My pleasure, Dean. Well, another edition of the Keep It Clean podcast is complete. I'm glad we had a chance to re-edit what we had talked about with Tom before, so I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I hope you also find our topics and guests refreshing and inspiring, and I also hope that you will like, subscribe, and review us, and you won't miss a single episode. I'm your host, Dane Gregory, wishing you well in your cleaning and restoration endeavors. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to keep it clean.